This is very important that I get this right because I am interviewing one of the hottest literary stars on these lands right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't want to fuck it up. You you start with comedy. I love it. (laughs) Welcome to Brick Podcast. I'm Laurie Graham, publisher of Brick, and this is the second episode in our three-part series called Writer to Writer which puts early career and established writers in conversation on the art and craft of writing. My name is Erica Violet Lee, and I'm here today on the Brick Podcast with Kinesia Lubrin. And I'm very honored to be in discussion with you today, Kinesia. You're one of my favorite writers. Your work is magnificent and it makes me feel something most importantly and that's sort of what we strive to do as artists and writers so it's such an honor to be here with you the honor really is is mine thank you erica so before before we start anything i have to ask you how do you pronounce the title of your new book (laughs) (laughs) you can say however you want i say the disgraphist you can say however you want is such a good yeah. <laughs> answer. <laughs> it's the truth, really. I love it when writers and artists leave things to the imagination. I think I find myself to be sort of to the contrary of that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very young and blunt about what I do, but I really admire the ability to just sort of and this is not to say like leave things up to interpretation because your writing is very clear the the stakes are very clear in your writing and what you're writing for and who you're writing to but it's very skillful so where does that intentionality come from in your writing practice well it's a good question i'm not sure if i can pinpoint a location you know, the stuff that I write, it's it's hard. This is hard work. And I don't hide the difficulty in it. And so if I am in the work as its maker, uh, and I still find myself getting to know the work and seeing the work making something, you know, I, I think that that space of generosity, I think, is is crucial for me. Can I still feel alive in it? such that I'm still pulled through by questions that open up the work in a new way. I love that you are clear about the fact that writing is hard work and so many folks don't necessarily see that or acknowledge it, especially in terms of the writing of Black women, Indigenous women, queer folks, um, trans folks and people of colour where writing comes from is such a distinct, intensely lived, intensely political um, experience uh, that never ends. I was filling out my taxes for the first time as a as a professional writer and talking to the guy on the phone and he's like, so how how long each day do you write? And how long each day are you working on your writing and what area of the house are you writing in? I thought like 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the writing never stops. That's exactly right. 
you know, and even, you know, sometimes you write um, when, when you can say, here is the physical act of putting pen to paper or making your digits dance on a keyboard, um, but everything in between also is part of the work. You know, so that's why, you know, that's one of the reasons why I really hate the concept of something called writer's block. Yeah, it's very bizarre because <laughs> sometimes you write, uh, sometimes you don't. But the thing that you do in between, all of the stuff that you have to amass to go back to the page is part of that work. And trying to force it will make you think that you're blocked somehow <laughs> when really all you are uh, is not quite ready. Or tired. <laughs> <laughs> or tired or, you know, Absolutely. I want to know how you started writing. I want to know at what point you realized, like, this is something I can do and that I want to do. My love for storytelling, you know, and really the thrill of making up some shit <laughs> that, that conjures something profound and relates to that profundity to the ordinary at the same time. That's the deep love that I really enjoy that. And so, you know, I've, I've said so many times already how my grandmother, she told us stories every night, really opened me up to the power of storytelling and, and the power of language. And then there was a typewriter around the house, it belonged to one of my big sisters. She had this fancy office administration job. <laughs> and whenever I got the chance, I used to just go over and start typing things. Um, not necessarily with any rhyme or reason, but I just love the motion of typing away on that thing and listening to the sounds of it and fancying myself a creator, making something, making some shit up, you, you know? And so, <laughs> that, <laughs> so when did I really think, oh, this, this thing called writing is something that I could do? In primary school, I had a teacher, she kept encouraging me. And so one day I went home uh, and I was about maybe nine years old, nine, 10, and just wrote a story about one of my big sisters who was always on the phone, always on the telephone. And then I took that to school and I, and I put it on my teacher's desk. And we were, we were seated writing an exam. And I remember her whelping, like she just stood up and she, <laughs> she whelped, she got out the door and it was just, I could hear her voice fading down the hallway when she came back she was like you wrote this you, you wrote this thing you know and so that that I, I thought was really truly quite encouraging even though I didn't I didn't really know the measure of that quite as yet and then when I got to high school you know we had theater I, I played Caesar I you know I did all, all <laughs> I did a lot, I did a lot of different things in different modes, you know, so really in, in encountering how language can, can make something come alive. And then I kept going, I kept going. Poetry, I kind of pushed away for a long time, uh, but stories, I, I, I was always with that, you know. I love that story and just the thought of this like typewriter, yeah. <laughs> like discovering a typewriter. No, it's outrageous. <laughs> It's outrageous. It was somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and I think I'd seen it on TV, you know. The teacher story resonated with me as well. Good teachers are everything. They really are. Um, they really and are. And as, as much as we need to talk about 
you know, the violence that Black and Indigenous folks especially face in educational settings. I think so many of us have a story of like, at least hopefully one or two teachers who along the way were not totally awful. And those teachers meant everything. They really did. Absolutely. I mean, this teacher passed away last year and I had planned to go visit her when I went back to St. Lucia. But, you know, life has its own way of of doing things, you know, but she certainly is a really powerful link in that chain. So you mentioned that you pushed poetry away at first, and I, I feel similarly. For me, at least, it was something about poets not being taken seriously um, and, you know, po- especially uh, identifying as a femme, mm. thinking like, oh, this is not real writings. If I want to prove myself as a writer, I have to do something serious, like the political essays I was writing for the longest time. <laughs> right? uh, um, so I'm wondering, like, why you think you pushed poetry away and what brought you back to it? I mean, those forces you explained, certainly they were present, they still are, you know. Poetry doesn't have the kind of, you know, cultural force and, and capital that other kinds of writing has. And I tend to think that sometimes, you know, mainly uh, that that is to our benefit, that it doesn't, it doesn't fit very easily in the, in these sorts of consumerist, capitalist, commercializable modes. But, you know, po- I did push poetry away as someone who writes poetry, not as someone who appreciates poetry. Poetry was always very close to me. I always deeply, deeply valued it. Uh, And it's that deep sense of um, respect that I have for poetry is also what caused me to to push it beyond the reach of my pen for a while. You know, it's that managing uh, what I found was a profound ethical responsibility in poetry. I didn't give myself permission to be able to manage that weight. And it, it, it has a lot to do with a lot of the things that you have brought up in terms of one's positionality. As a Black woman whose journey through literature has been atypical, you know, and I think some of that really has to do with the fact that, you know, I have a certain way about me, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I'm stubborn in some in some kinds of ways that simply would not allow me to be amenable to certain things so you know sometimes stubbornness does pay off actually now that i think about it so many of the poets that are writing right now and probably in the past as well but the poets that i've had the chance to be acquainted with are stubborn characters and i think maybe you have to be you have to be a stubborn person to to insist upon such a an emotional form of of art um and say here here is my here's my soul here is my heart like it's worth something so that's very powerful yeah i mean the work that we're given over to as creators as writers you know everything we 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 cart to the page you give everything over to craft you know but then when that work leaves you, it gets slotted into those categories uh, that de- predetermines on, on a number of different levels how that work is received, how it's talked about, how it's 
critiqued how it is given a certain kind of legibility you know but in you know in spite of all that that sort of beast that machine works the way it works in this sort of model that is uh, you know exclusionary and 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 even antique but i think some of the incongruity comes from the very nature of literature and the fact that it doesn't fit into any supply and demand model. One can't supply and demand our way through literature. <laughs> you know, and so it's interesting because in a sense, we're kind of at odds with the actual structure of, of publishing. And, and it, it becomes sort of mystifying how one persists in that, that sort of counter, uh, the sort of counter <laughs> creative space. Yeah, so being a writer means, I think, being at odds not only with the structure of publishing, uh, but with the structures of capitalism and colonialism as well. It's such an interesting positionality to be in, um, wondering like how to get your writing out and, and share it, while at the same time not turning yourself into a brand, which is so common these days. And it's a deeply individualistic, flawed pursuit as well. So you talk a lot about being a diasporic writer. And I'm wondering what being a diasporic writer and identifying as a diasporic writer means to you and why that's important to you, perhaps for thinking of young people and people people of all ages who will pick up your writing and be coming from a similar positionality and thinking, oh, wow, she did this. Yeah. I mean, there's on, on one level one can talk about, about, you know, what was done and how what was done can be held up as a kind of example. Uh, but I think what I would prefer is to talk about the ways that diaspora, you know, or, or one sense of dislocation says something that's more true about the nature of the world than does other kinds of enclosure that is based in, if we're being honest, colonial mindsets and worldviews. These crude ideas that will distort the need for us to actually transcend these demarcations and these um, and these enclosures. Uh, and so I think, you know, thinking through what I find to be the fluidity of our relation to the world, to space, to land and water and air and to each other, makes me think diasporically. It does not at all make me think in terms of ownership of an enclosure. And so I think those are, are important things for me as a writer. And so when I enter a space, I bring the, that particular awareness uh, with me. And that opens up my imagination, you know, to be available to what the work that I'm doing with the page needs in the instance of its creation, not in relation to something called nostalgia or something called you know, nation state or to have these kinds of, uh, of of impossibilities held over one's head. Yeah, I find that fascinating. 
I remember the first time I read one of Ronaldo Walcott, his, his essays, and I was shocked that more people hadn't engaged with them, specifically more um, non-Black Native thinkers, because to me it, it kind of blew open my conception of what I thought indigeneity was and what had always been presented to me as this like Indigenous identity, which is actually deeply rooted in notions that are exclusive to Black folks that are, that are anti-Black, um, that are so f- deeply focused on this notion of reconciliation with white settlers above all else, above all other relationships. And as you said, nostalgic is a great, is a great term to, um, to describe it. And like the hanging on to the nostalgia, um, the impossibilities that are hung over our heads and limit our relationships to each other, limit our relationships to our place when they're supposed to be expanding identity itself becomes an enclosure. It becomes a way to foreclose possibility, right? If you are a Black woman queer writer, you have to write about something called trademark, the Black queer woman experience, you know? But if one can exist, you know, whatever it is one identifies as, fine, yeah? And also say um, that actually we do have the capacity to to trouble these neat contours that that tend to oversimplify our um, the, what is possible for us to be in relation uh, within, uh, then I I typically find that's a lot more generative. It's a lot more honest, you know, um, and so that that that's primarily the space that I can you know um, feel free to call myself a diasporic writer, you know, and to and to look through that lens. I think that's beautiful. Um, do you have your book nearby? I do. I have a I have a poem that I was going to read an excerpt from, but I realized, oh, I have the writer here, and I could ask her to read. Um, it's return number twenty, page seventy three. Okay, I'll read it. Uh, return number twenty. Would you find me guilty of dream? with my trousers suddenly dirty, with knowledge of the exact thickness of the exterior wall of my kitchen, the Arctic's flooded reservoirs, the seedlings, the bankrolls, the rusty stalks of corn, all the laboring and the essential leaves, the seasonal floods, the mineraled mud, what you call civilization, still whole without language. Would you talk if I talk of the water, the ships, the whip, estates, the guns, the guns, the bullets, someplace 5,000 years, enough to be undisturbed. Someone, someone once told me the story of this dream. Kanana Skomatin, thank you. Would you find me guilty of dream? What an extraordinary line. So many of your poems to me come from a heavy place, but um, are at once re- very realistic and grounded, but leave us, leave me with a sense of renewed wishing to dream against the odds. 
and despite the world and with the world as well. I wonder, do you remember the processes of writing certain poems? Yeah. Uh, you know, thank you for those kind words, uh, Erica, by the way. Um, so with this book, this book had a different process than the previous book, uh, than the next book, actually. <laughs> so with this one, I had written a few standalone poems that had been commissioned. Um, and then when I went back to them, I saw that they had thematic similarities that, that seemed to be serializing the kind of thought. Um, and so I saw, I thought, hmm, okay. So, so I went back and put those poems together. And then the core question of what language is and what language does uh, to our sense of relation and to the sense of the individual and the I, the ego, uh, that, that came up. And so conceptually, that's a kind of large, <laughs> It's a large question. Uh, and so what I found is that certain parts of the poem had already been written out and I had done that by hand. And then to extend the thought sufficiently and to give that idea its due attention, I had to build the sensorium of the poem first. And so what that means is I really, I follow the language. I follow what the language opens up, what is felt, what is sensed and what is near, you know, what is near to that thought. And then I go back and I try to work with something called logic. And so the idea should never overwhelm the poem to the point that, that the poem itself sort of disintegrates under the weight of the thing. And so it's, it's how do I, how do I transform you know, the, the spirit and the insistence within the work into the kind of language space that will allow the reader in, that will allow me to stay in the poem, and that would keep the integrity of the, of the, of the sort of intention um, alive, you know? And so that's the, the, the main process looks something like that. And it probably sounds really abstract, but it's okay, is, is, everything, is everything felt? Is everything clear? And does the language do the work that the idea is asking for? Wow, that's such good ad advice. <laughs> you mentioned at the beginning, actually, uh, the beginning of our discussion, how going back to the work, and I find that to be one of the most difficult tasks as a writer, is going back to your older work and um, re-meeting that person you were at the time and and all of their ghosts <laughs> and all of their, um, just, it's a different person, right? And that's the best advice I think I was given just to be gentle with the, the other person who had written that work. And I wonder how you, when you go back to older drafts and when you go back to older writing or are asked to read some of your older writing, how does it make you feel? And how do you use that experience to inform your newer writing? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, you know, I don't obsess about the person that I was, if that's a different person. I tend to want to meet 
whatever the thing was on its own terms. If you go back and nothing has changed, then perhaps, you know, I might find that more daunting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, I, I expect that, you know, whether it's in me or, or in the scope of the work, something will have shifted, you know. And so I have older drafts, you know, that I look at it and I, and I think, my goodness, I'm so glad I get to put you in the garbage bin now. Why was I holding on to you? <laughs> I don't know. I'm very sorry. I apologize for holding on to you, but this, you know, this trash can is where you belong. <laughs> and that's okay. That's perfectly okay. You know, and other times you go back to the work and you think, okay, here's a phrase that I had completely underestimated. You know, here's a phrase or a line or a sentence or a paragraph that I had dismissed. And so now, what can be made of it? You know, how does it fit into whatever's happening right now in this hour as I put pen to paper? There's a poem in, at page 94, dream number 41. And this one especially caught my eye. It's got a line through it and it reminds me of the first thing it rem reminded me of was the Saskatchewan River <laughs> when I when I um, read it. And I'm wondering, so for this poem and quite a few others, your the way you chose to display them is playing with form, playing with adding things that aren't words to the page. Uh, at what point did you decide I don't want this to look like every other poetry book I've read <laughs> and I want this to look uh, very unique and very, um, like I think it, fit, it completely fits with the, the words you've written on the page. Yeah, um, you know, the primary thing with a work that is experimental because this is an experimental work, uh, for me, what's important is that I am not making choices that are merely on ornamental, that the choices that I make are intrinsic to what the work is, to, uh, to the, you know, the sort of tradition that the work fits into, the kind of weight that the poems are carrying, and the, the affect of the work as well. So the sine wave or the, the sort of parabola on page 94 was, this comes at the end of the dream and return sequence, which I was trying to enact in that, in that section, a kind of call and response, which is in the Africanist tradition in the Caribbean, where that, that music relies on the poetry of song and improvisation to do its work and the audience has to get involved somehow. And so I really was thinking both on the level of syntax, but also on the level of using the visuality of the page, using the page as landscape, right? And so if I drew the river, which really what is what that is, and I was thinking of the Rozo River, where you're thinking of the Saskatchewan River, and that's it, that's what's supposed to happen. I want the work to be generous enough for that. Um, but again, the sine wave is also tonal. Again, going back to the call and response. And so 
you know, that sort of layering, that the collaging of the visual and the sonic, that sort of interplay is doing a particular kind of work. But after that, you have the footnotes. And so as a Black woman, knowing that a lot of Black, black culture, Blackness, Black being uh, has been relegated to the footnotes of a lot of history, even if we are at the center, <laughs> really, truly, we are at the center of, of modernity, um, of what the world has become, uh, you know, that is the sort of irony and contrast I was playing with. So to embed the majority of the poem in the footnote, where you have it gesturing to something floating in the hierarchical top of the page is doing something else again, right? And so it's never ornamental. Like the, the, each decision that I make is intrinsic to what I want the poem to do, how I want the words to enact, and, and the kind of space, intellectual, um, philosophical, emotional, and otherwise that I would like to invite the reader into. Brilliant, brilliant. And so I think we're getting towards the end of our time here, but yeah, I'm, I guess the last thing I'm wondering is, can you think of any poems that really shaped your writing and the kind of writer you want to be? Absolutely. Dion Brand's No Language is Neutral is formative for me. I would not have carried on, I would not be in this scenario right now with you if it were not for that book. It opened up a door for me, it gave me permission. So yes, it's, it's in my poetic DNA. Yes, great work. And what can we expect from your next work? I have a collection of short stories forthcoming called Code Noir. And <laughs> it is, so the name comes from King Henry XIV's Code Noir, uh, which was an edict that he wrote in, in 1886, they're about, which was supposed to control the conditions of life for quote unquote free black people and enslaved black people in the French empire. And so I take each one of King Henry the 14th Code Noirs and I sort of explode them in fiction. So there's 59 stories worth coming in early 2023. That's the next thing. That sounds remarkable. Well, Kinesia, thank you so much for your time and your kindness and your generosity. And most of all, thank you for your writing and the bravery and work that it takes to continue writing, especially in a time like this. I think that your who you are and who you who you are willing to be, despite the difficulties of it all, really touches many more people than you'll ever know. Oh, thank you. That, that's so yeah. lovely and generous of you to say. I appreciate you so much, Erica. And really, truly, I would like to, to say also that it is a distinct honor and richness to be doing this work alongside you. And I want everybody to look out for what you are going to do. It was a pleasure, real, a real pleasure to, to talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Writer to Writer is brought to you by Brick Podcast and Brick Magazine. Special thanks to the Toronto Arts Council for their support of this series. 
Subscribe to Brick Podcast through Apple Podcasts and subscribe to Brick Magazine on our website, brickmag.com, where you can also get a first look at our new winter 2022 issue featuring writing and interviews from Eleanor Wachtel, Kinesia Lubrin, and many more. Thanks for listening.